I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sandspants Radio, Australia's most procedurally generated podcast network. Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George Dimros. This is a show where we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Today on the show, I have the associate uh, of... Uh, I've blanked on it. No, I've got it. So, uh, today on the show, I've got the associate professor for history at La Trobe University, Liz Connor. How are you doing, Liz? Good. How are you, George? I'm good. How, how was that the second time? I got, I got that down? Yeah. <laughs> <It's> okay. <fine. laughs> so how are, you, how are you traveling at the moment? You're down in Melbourne as well, obviously. So how's it all going? Yeah, it's okay. I mean, I've, I've sort of had a couple of self-imposed writing retreats and exiles in my research career. So apart from the obvious things, it isn't that different from a self-imposed exile, really. Right. How long would these self-imposed exiles go for? Um, the first one, I was pregnant and it was down at Y River and I was there for most of the pregnancy. I was trying to get a first draft of my PhD finished. And then the second one was the more recent book and that was, yeah, bits and pieces here and there. I have a camper trailer and I park it in the bush. No, on your own? Yep. Borrowed a few friends' beach houses. Yeah, I just, I lock myself away. I just work all day. But when you're working all day like that, there's time to go for a walk and have meals and that kind of thing. But it's pretty intensive. So this lockdown hasn't been that unaccustomed for me. That's interesting. Because like, so one of the things a lot of people say about this lockdown specifically, I guess, is that, that people shouldn't beat themselves up because they're not doing the proactive writing thing, which it sounds like you would do on these retreats. But they're saying this is one of those instances where yeah. it's okay if you don't do that for a lot of people because it's, there's a lot going on. So mm. mentally, maybe you're not in the best place to like do all that sort of proactive stuff in this current circumstance. I think that's really true. So it depends on what function your working life has for you emotionally. For a lot of people, their working lives are a toil and, and a chore and, and they're not excited and, and motivated about it. I'm one of the blessed people that loves my work. It's a cornerstone for me. It's what I love to do. It's how I love to spend my time. <laughs> so for me, lockdown meant less running around and more focused concentration on my work. So I just settled into a really good routine. I'm also here with my kids, but they're grown up. We're a women-only household. We come together to cook and we watch a bit of telly and then I read a bit more. So I settled in, into a, a very sustaining routine, but that's not to say it hasn't been a struggle to not be able to see, you know, people like my dad who's got a prognosis and limited time and all of those things, they've been really, really hard. Right. And yeah, I've had a few, a few wine Zooms with friends and I have a friend that I walked our dog with, say once a week. So there was a bit of relief, but aside from that, Probably quite a few writers could tell you that it, it's not something they're entirely foreign to, self-imposed exile. Yeah. How old are your daughters? 21 and 18. Oh, okay, right. That's very manageable. I was going to say, because I've, I've heard a lot of parents with kids slightly younger who have slowly become hollow shells of what they once were over this quarantine. It's been funny to see the, the, the collective mental breaking of every parent on the planet. It's one of the secret joys of not having kids, to be honest. <laughs> like, 
Oh, absolutely. This is the luxury seat in lockdown. I'm sitting in it. They're grown up, so I have the company and their company is good. They're hilarious and they they make a lot of fun of me, which I quite enjoy. Having little kids and trying to homeschool, I just, I feel immensely because, I mean, I did try to write PhD and the second book with little kids growing up and, yeah, they were at school there was playdates. It was brain frying. I call it desktop parenting. <laughs> it's what I had to do. I'm trying to keep them on track. I mean, I just actually can't imagine how hard it can be. And, and I actually found mothering such, such a confronting loss of autonomy. Oh, really? That I set up a campaign. Yep. As a, as a mother of young kids, I actually set up a campaign called the Mothers of Intervention. And we burnt maternity bras on the steps of Parliament. <laughs> It was about maternity leave, but it was about other reforms to give mothers better supports and also to create better community around mothering. Um, So it's not that I've forgotten (laughs) just how incredibly hard it is and how much tension it creates in your relationship with your partner, how hard it is to get domestic equity right and how absolutely essential that is to having a, a relationship that's functioning and then how much of that gets played out around the kids and through the kids unavoidably. It's very, very difficult. We're not doing it right. We're not parenting right. From a system point of view, you mean? I mean, purely circumstantially. We do need a village and kids need a herd and they need each other and we're not raising kids right. It's not right. The nuclear family unit is an absolute abomination and it's probably why there's been such a massive post-war spike in mental health issues. This is not how we should be raising children. It's wrong. We need to fix it. So essentially, I, I think I, I agree in a sense, like as in, in terms of the idea of a nuclear family on its own sitting in its little bubble, that doesn't make any sense. And it's got no corollary with history at all. Like as in, it's a very modern thing, which like, so it's not about like the, yes, the parents and the kids, but they should have a whole unit around them because that's just how society used to be not that long ago. It just propagates neurotic relationships and dysfunctional ones. And look, look, lots of people get it relatively right. Mm. But I, I think that we can do it a lot better. And the principle is create domestic equity around the partners of children. And that, that needs to be far better supported through workplace flexibility. And maybe that's one of the lessons we'll learn from this lockdown. The other thing we need to do is, is to be far more cognizant that kids that are raised in villages where the care is more diffusely shared and kids that have access to a herd of other kids where they are running in a pack <laughs> are probably kids that are that are better that are better functioning in relationships and lots of people set those things up by living close to their families or by having really good neighborhoods and it's certainly the case that kids like dogs create neighborhoods because you start taking them to ballet and soccer and or whatever it is or even just school or childcare, and you start building up those communities. But I think we need to be more critically minded about how difficult the nuclear family unit really is. It has some perks. I wouldn't do away with it altogether, but I just think that we need to rethink community around childcare. Yeah, you're not planning to just throw away the entire system. We'll keep parts of it. Keep the good bits. Yeah, yeah, keep the good bits, throw out everything else. Look, I I think it's true. I mean, you can look around now and look at the uh, alienation and isolation a lot of people feel, and which, again, times. 10 during a quarantine. I mean, but the funny thing is, who knows, maybe this has taught people that uh, there is value in just the idea. And also, I think there'll be an element of parents will just be like, get them away from me. Now that they can leave, get these kids. I never want to see them again. Give them a herd. (laughs) I don't want to be in charge anymore. Like maybe that could happen as well. Yeah, you need respite. But yes, maybe one of the, the big lessons of lockdown is a better understanding of how incredibly important connection is, human connection and community, and to be more proactive about creating those things for ourselves personally, but also like in a more organised societal sense, more supports around neighbourhood, you know, the fabric of neighbourhood and Mm. community. For those people who've done lockdown hard, harder than me, connection, I I think, has loomed very large as one of the things we kind of take for granted. No, definitely. We need to be more proactive in a systemic sense about putting those things in place. Yeah, it'll be interesting seeing the fallout from this year on the almost global psyche in terms of all this stuff. Like Melbourne, I think, will be the case study because 
of the fact that we've been in lockdown the longest out of almost anywhere now. So it'd be really interesting to see if that impacts things. Because, you know, they talk about building up a habit or building up things you want to do. And people can say like, two weeks is enough. But like when it's three, two, three months, it's like, this is really long enough to properly appreciate things, I think. So we'll see. And we are. We are a world first. And and we are precisely that, a petri dish for understanding societal relations and rethinking in the reset and the recovery, rethinking how to, to do mm. them better. Okay, so I'm going to have to ask because you, you've mentioned it. So what, did you, what was you burned on the steps of parliament? So um, I have a, a, another hat and I'm, that is I'm a, a community activist and I've run, I don't know, a dozen campaigns. The first one was around I'd been a sexual assault counsellor in a regional health service and I ran a campaign on the way sexual violence against women is depicted in the media. It was called the Coalition Against Sexual Violence Propaganda. The next campaign I did, I think, was around motherhood and getting better supports for mothers. I'd like to say parents, but I think that's a utopian notion. I think mostly it's very gendered and mothers are doing most of the work. Those men that are single dads, I'm referring to you when I say (laughs) mother. (laughs) So you talk about specifically the single carer situation? No, no, I'm not. I'm talking about mothers in partnerships, but they're not really partnerships and partnership is as as much a utopian notion as parent is. It's still women who are doing most of this work and we have to find a way in language to refer to it, to to acknowledge that. So that was a campaign on getting better supports for parents, but really mothers. And we burnt maternity bras on the steps of parliament. And I think that was the first kind of theatrical thing I did. And from then on, all the campaigns I then went on to do, the next one was on native title, did the house plaques that you see around it everywhere. And we did these little armbands and ribbons. Oh, so you start, you learn to include elements of the theatrical into, I know, I know that's the wrong word, but yeah, more, more visible displays of your activism that started there and you've kept it up since? Yep. So my research is on modernity and spectacle. And I started to draw on those ideas around in the activism. And then the next campaign was climate change. And with a friend, Deborah Hart, a comrade really, Deborah Hart, we set up the Climate Guardian Angels. And they actually had quite an impact. They were derived from Alana Beltran's Weld Angel. And she got involved for a while. And we went to the COP21 in Paris. And we had a lot of coverage. And then the one I'm working on now, Olets, and that's a troupe of cigarette girls, ushers, theatre usherettes, and they've got coal in their trays and they're, they're having to sell it because nobody wants to buy it anymore. <laughs> so they're these sexy, ditzy girls selling coal. Yeah. Well, is this, well, you've got this happening right now on the streets, or not right today, but, but that's the plan? That's only been unrolled once and we intercepted Josh Frydenberg at Coorong in his uh, the last federal election. We went all over the state trying to intercept Scott Morrison, but that will have to be the next election. But yes, there's a troop there and it's ready to go. The idea is that they are the marketing team for the Minerals Council of Australia. <laughs> and the Minerals Council of Australia has had to resort to sexy girls to sell coal because nobody nobody wants to buy it anymore. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that ties in exactly with, I guess, we should might as well mention now your book of choice for today. Yeah. So it's called Fossil Capital by someone called Andreas Malm. And it takes a kind of Marxist look at industrialisation and asks, how did we get into the mess we are in, which is this, you know, intractable coupling of coal with surface value. How did we become a carbon-based economy and how, where did, where did that come from? And so he looks at the history of steam power, which of course is industrialisation, and points the finger at Britain, the first industrialising nation. And the first industrialising, you know, industries were were textiles. So he looks at the shift from water wheels to steam and in terms of the mechanisation that was harnessed to first water wheels and then steam. And he asks, why did we transition away from water, which was free, to steam, which is fuelled by coal, which was relatively expensive? Why did we go for more, a, more ex, a more expensive and, and initially a less powerful and certainly a less clean source of energy? And the answer is it, it enabled the mill masters to suppress the agitation of the spinners and the weavers. So it was about capital in the rawest sense of about having power over the workers and that's why we transitioned. Really? Yeah. That's the story of industrialism. It's a new take on it and I think it's quite 
revolutionary. <laughs> so basically the idea was uh, even though you still have workers in a coal-powered situation, you're going to be breaking apart the established unions and things that exist in the industry before that. Yeah. So what was happening was around about the 1830s, the spinners and the weavers were agitating and organising into unions and they were quite powerful and at one point they had agitated so effectively that they were being paid more than engineers. So when they struck in the 1850s, well, sorry, 1830s, when the 1824 combination law was repealed, when they started striking and really and rioting, the mill masters sacked a lot of them, but it's very difficult to replace them because the mills weren't in the central urban areas at that point, like um, Manchester and Glasgow. The mills were all out on the streams. They were dispersed. Ah, they were dispersed right through yeah. the Midlands and the and Lower Scotland, um, in the best places for to position water wheels in the streams and the dells, lets and the waterfalls. So um, a couple of the mill masters huh. had built effectively colony towns, but there was an aversion for the people in the country to go and work in factories because it's very unpleasant, repetitive work and it was very disciplined. If they lost their workforce, it was very difficult for them to replace that workforce. They had to be replaced largely or recruited largely from London and urban, mm. urban centres. So steam was about interrupting what he calls the centrifugal dynamic of water, and that is that mill masters had to build these colony towns and set up their factories along, dispersed throughout the Midlands and Lower Scotland. What happened with steam, they could build their factories in the urban centres like Manchester's and on the ports, which is important because, you know, we're talking about cotton mm-hmm. wool coming in from, well, actually, coincidentally, the southeastern frontier of Australia, but also India and um, the slave states of America. So they needed to be on ports. You know, it was convenient to have them, the port cities for that reason, but also because that's where there was a disciplined labour force. And that's why... Andreas Malm says, the shift from water to steam, which is how we became a carbon-based economy and got us into the mess that we're in, was about the suppression of labour. And this, this agitation of the spinners and weavers was the birth of the union movement. This is the beginning of, of the workers' movement. And the mill masters had to squash it. They did it by shifting their factories into urban centres where they could easily replace their workers, but also discipline them through police. It's so interesting. When I think about it, it's like those uh, mill workers were the first example of like mass employees. So obviously that would be the case, like not mass employees, like obviously discarding the long history of much more problematic nature, but where you've got paid people who are skilled and able to talk to each other who are also working for someone on like the same activity, I guess. So that would be the example where you'd see unions pop up or people kind of getting power that way. Yeah, they were easier to discipline as well. They were a more disciplined workforce in the the urban centres and they were imminently replaceable. So if they struck and rioted, they could all be sacked and replaced easily, whereas for the mill masters out in the Midlands, that was far more difficult to do and very, very expensive. So even though coal was a more expensive energy, because water was free, even though coal was more expensive energy and it wasn't initially greater horsepower or anything like that, it had really very few selling points and that's why it took something like 40 years from the invention of this, the um, Watt steam engine in the 1780s through to its wide uptake in the 1830s. It took so long because it wasn't really a better source of energy. It was purely about pacifying and disciplining and being able to replace the agitating, organising spinners and weavers. From what I'm hearing, it did eventually become more efficient in terms of just as a a use of power and stuff, coal did get there. So you could almost say that, uh, which I mean, people will be like, no, that's the case, whatever. But let's just say the fact that they got to take the power away from the unions and stuff like that, that would have made that switch a lot faster than it would have in any other circumstance is kind of how I would take that. Water was always free and coal was always more expensive. So it went on being a more expensive energy source for the mill masters right on into the into the 1880s, I think. But it's very expensive oh, really? to replace a workforce, yeah, that has struck and rioted. <laughs> so huh. the expression... So actually, so it didn't actually have the technological improvement until... No. Way later. Yeah, no, much later. Water was cheaper, uh, more powerful because, you know, they, they, they did a lot of innovation 
around around hydraulics as well. They had dams and sluice skates and all kinds. And, you know, the, some of the water wheels were huge and there were two or three of them running in the river at the same time. So they did a lot of um, hydraulic science as, around, around improving water, water as an energy source as well at the same time. But steam... Steam had the edge purely in the sense that it, you, if you harnessed it to mechanisation, you could take it into the, the urban centres to a more replaceable and a more, and a more disciplined and a more passive workforce, supposedly. But, you know, there were riots. And in the 1830s, there was, um, I think it was 1832, there was the plug-plock riot. And I, and I really love this because the expression pulling the plug comes from these riots. What they did was the, the spinners and the weavers went in and pulled the plug under the boiler so all the water ran out so there was no steam. <laughs> and that, that's where the expression pulling the plug comes from. I love hearing the origin of things like that. Yeah, these guys were effectively machine breakers and there'd been machine breaking going on with the threshing machines, so the industrialisation of agriculture as well. There was resistance by ploughmen and the, the farm workers. So two of my forebears were swing rioters in Oxfordshire. They, um, they had broken a machine in 1831 and, no, 1830 and been sent to Van Diemen's Land in 1831, two brothers, William and Thomas. No way. <laughs> so for you, your history of activism goes back <laughs> many, many generations. Yeah, I liked <laughs> that they were writers, but, you know, this was, the, this was the swing writers were, they, they were a very sought-after convict labour force in Tasmania because they had no other hit criminal records. They're relatively uh, unoffending people, so they were that, that particular shipment, two shipments of swing writers were highly prized by the the squatters and the pastoralists in Van Diemen's Land because, yeah, they were unoffending and, and they weren't accustomed to thieving and pickpocketing and the things that other convicts maybe were drinking to excess. So that's very interesting because my my great-great-great-grandfather, William Modley, when he arrived in Van Diemen's Land on the Eliza, was assigned to a man called Simpson who had a run of land just in front of a block that I recently bought. And I'm trying to find out whether my great-great-great-grandfather was assigned to that block because there was a whole series of massacres there four years before. So he would have been very aware of frontier violence in Tasmania and being there right in the aftermath. And I'm just trying to find out more about that. That blows me away, having that level of knowledge about distant relatives. I've got a... Like, I am so in the other direction. Both my parents were born in Greece and they both... Yeah, there's basically no records going back. Barely know what my great-grandparents were doing, apart from being there. Like, as in, there's no history at all for me because there's no record, like, of that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's, it's so interesting to me to hear that when someone's got, like, that level of depth of history gone that far back. It's interesting because the records are around them being, you know, um, rioters and and being incarcerated yeah. and transported. Otherwise, otherwise, there isn't much to know about them. They were ploughmen. You don't have any uh, capitalists in your history? No, 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 no I, don't have a, I don't have that kind of landowning wealthy background. I'm convict and, um, and then they married Irish sisters, those two brothers, and, and the family got more, more and more Irish. <laughs> oh. Yeah, on both on both sides. So that's actually that's my mother's great. That's my on my maternal side. It's my maternal great 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 grandfather. On my dad's side, that's all Irish. Growing up, did that did that story play out? Like, did your mum used to tell you about them specifically or something, or was that something which that's only just come up in the last few years? The story of the Wadley brothers as the swing writers. Um, there's a PhD that was just written a few years ago that I just read a couple of weeks ago because I, I want to write a novel around this stuff. <laughs> I know that's been done, but I, I'd like to try and tie it into the plug plot rights and the swing writers. Where was this textiles coming from, you know? And I want to sort of tell a little bit more of the transnational history of where the wool and the cotton was coming from, because that's when we start talking about frontiers and slavery. So it all kind of potentially ties into a magnificent novel, historical novel, that I'd like to try my hand at. You know, like, I'm, I'm totally for it. I love that. I still have yet to make write my novel, so nothing but jealousy. <laughs> You're not going to get any judgment here from using those stories. <laughs> I've only, all I've done is I've only just started by mapping it out. This is at the end of this project, so I've still got to finish this project before I get onto that one. What's your current? Um, the current project is called Graphic Encounters, and it's about Prince engravings, etchings, lithographs that feature Aboriginal people 
and I'm writing about the way Aboriginal people were visually documented in, in lots of the exploratory journals and, um, and yeah, just the prints that were being circulated around at the time. That's what I have been burrowing away on for the lockdown and I, I got two chapters down and I'm starting the third. Yeah, no, that sounds great. I mean, it's interesting. Uh, I do want to talk way more about the, the specific book and the, the, that story there, but... Uh, I, one thing I just wonder about, it's interesting how, like, your activism, I guess, hits a lot of different, like, topics, kind of. Like, yeah, it's not just focused on one specific area. It's kind of, like, obviously both marginalised groups and bigger issues of, like, you know, environmental concerns and things like that. What I'm finding interesting is, like, did, did you grow up with parents who were pushing you in that direction? I'm just wondering kind of where it might have come from. Was there something you grew up with around or...? Did you find it yourself because of a personal experience or...? I grew up near Eltham, so there were a lot of hippies around and my dad was on the local council and he and I used to go to Franklin Dam meetings. But so there was quite a lot of community activity going on. His best friend and my, my best friend's mother was Pauline Toner, so she was a real trailblazer in terms of women at the state level of, of parliament. She was the first minister for, actually for community affairs. And so there were some really dynamic people around me and they were involving themselves in all kinds of community activities, progress associations. My dad set up one to try and keep our area more bushy. So he was a kind of environmentalist uh, in some ways, but has some very conservative viewpoints. In fact, I think his brain got kidnapped by Rupert Murdoch. (laughs) One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes. Until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> around about, around, you know, I think Howard kind of let him off the leash on a lot of social issues. But, but what, so did you, are you saying that he had a switch from environmental concerns to not caring about the environment anymore or just in terms of like... No, no, there's, there's a, there is a very conservative streak within the environmental movement. It's, there are people in the environmental movement who have quite conservative views on social issues. It's not common but it, it is there. Uh, that, that's what I was saying. It's funny. I was reading a thing about it where I was talking about people, sometimes these political ideologies left and right, they, they, they come to mean everything, even though it's yeah. only just two things. And it's so strange sometimes. And the example they gave was it's so interesting. Uh, the environment you would think is actually a good example of where conservatives would want to protect the environment because it's like, let's not change stuff. Let's leave it where it is. Let's not do anything there. While you'd think liberals would be more like, oh, no, tear it all down because we just want to help social people. We want to help progress. So it's one of these weird ones where actually they went in the opposite direction because obviously it's a more complex thing about economic capital movements like you know yourself. But funnily, in a way, loving the environment actually rings more true to a lot of conservative values of like keeping things the same and not changing it. I don't know, the grime of the city infecting like the cleanliness, whatever. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I guess it's about maintaining the status quo, the status quo that serves their interests that's more about money. Mm. <laughs> That's more about money. So, so yeah. you know, uh, tearing things, tearing down the bush and development is going to trump their romantic, whatever romantic attachment they might have to, you know, pristine wilderness is going to come second. The status yeah. quo that ultimately conservatives preserve is, is, is their own wealth. 
<laughs> and that's a, it's funny because you're mentioning this book. I'm, I'm going to like try to, I'm trying to actually get how many things this is hitting that sound like they might be relevant to you because both, I'm guessing the, and this is, you can tell me if this is right, the the weavers and stuff who were in the original mills in the water, I, that sounds like it was maybe more gender, more cross-gender than the factories ended up being later. The, the original operatives in the colony factories, the ones that were built on the rivers, and they were quite extraordinary, they were young women and they were often recruited from the big towns and to attract them and and keep them they built cottages they had libraries there was education for the kids there was there were in some cases um you know medical clinics so they they were quite revolutionary the 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 original idea of the mill colony or the factory town but things changed with the appeal of the combination laws in 1824 that set in train a, a, a kind of a festering frustration that, that had been building around industrialization amongst the working urban poor. The Enclosure Acts had a lot to do with that too, so I don't know if you know, but between about 1770 and about 1840, about 16 million hectares of the commons and fields where the rural poor ran geese and grew subsistence crops were enclosed, which means basically the landlords, the rich guys put fences around them and told everyone to fuck off. Yeah. Uh, so that left people like my, my great-great-great-grandfather, Thomas Wadley and his brother, when they then brought in threshing machines, that just tipped the balance for them because they didn't have any bargaining rights anymore and they had no way to subsist either because of the Enclosure Acts. So around this time, there's a kind of festering frustration amongst the rural and the urban poor in England. It's not a very nice time to be there and there starts to be riots and, and so on and they kind of tie together. And, and one of the themes that ties them together is machine breaking, which is really interesting for us to reflect on now because we're facing automation and we're, and all of the impacts that's going to have for the labour force. Mm. A lot of it gets, let's say, it gets cast in negative light, especially growing up. I mean, that's Luddite stuff, right? That's what they call that sort of thing where people would come in and break the machines because, and it's cast almost as if like, oh, people scared of change. So they come and break the things that are, instead of just like people who can't accept progress is kind of how it almost gets pictured. I think a lot of the time. The Luddites are a couple of decades earlier and I'm not actually sure very much what, what's going on there with the Luddites. I'd have to look it up. I have to Google that. Um, but the machine breaking that's happening around the 1830s is happening around steam, but also threshing machines in agriculture. And it was the last straw for people who had, were um, kind of displaced by the enclosure. They had nowhere to go. The threshing machines were seen as, as, as taking away their, their labour and their jobs and they had no way to bargain. So they started swing rioting. So, so the villagers would set up a, um, send around a letter from Captain Swing... <laughs> So great. I love this stuff. Captain Swing, <laughs> a, a post would go up. It sounds in you know, line with gonna, your showmanship, we'll, <laughs> your love of showmanship, yeah. <laughs> we're going to gather at the gate of whichever farmer and we're going to go and say, you know, dissemble your threshing machine or we're going we're gonna to bust it up and maybe even set it on fire. And that's what they did. About 19 of them were executed and about 1,500 of them were, trans, were, were transported. I guess this is actually interesting because, like, Compared to almost every technological advance since the, oh, actually, I'm, that's definitely, I don't know enough to even make that claim. But in this instance, it really is a very clean example of where the technology wasn't even more efficient. Its only purpose was to take away the ability for people to bargain because it, you, you still needed people. <laughs> it just made it so you could use other people somewhere else who would do it for chips. So it was literally like it, there was no actual efficiency apart from denying human rights to people in wages, I guess you could almost argue here. Because like, if it replaces people because it's more efficient, that's one thing. But in this case, it's literally, no, no, we still need the people to do stuff. We just don't have to pay them as much. So it's like almost like offshoring, I guess, in a weird way. And what, yeah, like you're just offshoring to the poor in the city rather than the rural where they can afford more. Yeah, it's about, it's about squashing the birth of the labour movement. It's about being able to discipline agitating uh, workers, spinners, weavers, um, farm labourers. It's about being able to get away with things like the Enclosure Acts. We were too, a massive land grab. I mean, you can do a kind of family tree of everybody sitting in the House of Lords now back to the landlords, their, their great, 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 
grandfather who, you know, profited from from the Enclosure Acts, but it's basically squatting. The, 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 the machine breakers around, plug clock rioters around, around the Midlands and around the, the colony factories and the factory townships like Manchester and Glasgow and all through Lancashire, it's about actually having discipline over those people. And there had been the Peterloo Massacre, so there had been another uprising where they just kind of charged into a whole crowd of men, women and children who were in their Sunday breast, the best and they were protesting and they killed a whole bunch of them. So this is all happening around the time of the Chartist movement, which is trying to get suffrage for, universal suffrage for men. Um, a lot's going on in the 1820s and 30s and 40s in England. And this is, this is it's, it's, I think it's more interesting for us to think about Australian history in terms of, of those kind of precedents that are being set around labour, because convict, of course, is transportation of labour. Um, and how much labour, like I just think it's, what I'm learning from Mom is how instructive it is to go back to a more Marxist um, theoretical framework to do history because labour is always so essential to understanding um, things that, that we've sort of lost, we've lost sight of that a little bit. Yeah, no, I know what you mean, like as in, but I guess just in terms of uh, both the scarce, scarcity and overabundance of labour will then impact things because even Australia, you could argue, the reason maybe it didn't go worse and worse that way is because, again, I'm guessing, but like we kind of had a scarcity of labour in some ways so people could bargain more and be in a better position to better themselves off so you don't end up in a situation where I guess it just kind of goes in a different direction. Is that is that the case with Australia or not really? I don't know. Uh, I don't really know much about um, what the labour setups were. I mean, transportation was about labour. Those My great-great-grandfather was signed um, to a pastoralist um, in Van Diemen's land, and that's the case for lots of convicts. They then became ticket of leave men, or they they got their free pardons within I don't know my great 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 grandfather's case. I think it was five or six years, and then he couldn't afford to come back to England. A handful of them who had the money went back, so he leased land near Deloraine. Potentially, he was in a position to have convicts assigned to him, but I don't think that was going on at that point. And then he made a, he came over to, to Victoria in 1851 for the gold rush and was here for about seven years. So when you do, family history is such a great way to better understand the complexity of the history that you're engaging with anyway. But on the pastoral stations, there was, you know, this kind of arrangement of unpaid labour amongst the Aboriginal people, of course. Um, there was the removal of children and the training of them at places like um, Kudamundra and the assigning of those young women into households where they were incredibly vulnerable, very sexually vulnerable. So, you know, there was the coercion of labour, the, the, you know, the shoe plantations in Queensland and um, Islander coercion, which was called colloquially blackbirding. So we actually have a very complex labour profile in Australian history. And I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm not an expert on it. So when I first started doing history, labour history was the kind of paradigm and we've moved away from that. And I think what I've learned from mom is that it's actually a really, we can't just abandon that framework. We need to really keep it in place um, along with the, the frameworks that have emerged since, like gender and sexuality and race, um, we still need to keep a firm eye on labour and be able to factor it in intelligently because it's just foundational to understanding all these movements of people and the oppression of so many peoples too is so much based around their labour. Clearly, like I, I've got a bit more of a, I guess economic view to things where like you can base everything almost in that and like ideas of race and gender and all that ultimately they actually are economic questions rather than inherent within a race or a gender is actually just a group which manages to get a certain power which then it associates with a certain way rather than any other way so it and like maybe that's just my dumb read but like that's why I would have thought something like the costs of labor would be one of the major drives of like history. Like it'd be that and like, yeah, who controls the capital and who and technological yeah. advancements. Like that would seem like the basis of all history almost. Like as in, yeah, rather than like gender and sex and, and race and all that, that's like, I just would have thought that that seems like a more neutral like framework. I don't know. Well, those are the determinants. And I suppose, I suppose you know, like when, when we're trying to, to do historical analysis within an intersectional framework, it's about being able to bring all those things together and hold them in tension. 
But I think one... That's exactly the one, yeah. Yeah, but I think the one that, that kind of has least focus on it is class at the moment and it's foundational. It's, it's, it's kind of one of the lenses through which we read all the others, sex, gender, race, and, and they're all lenses through which we have to read class as well if you if you get my drift it's very complicated yeah no i was actually having i was actually been going on this a bit recently i've been finding it interesting but like i didn't realize a class reductionist was a negative term because i would have thought because i'm like totally everything is class-based everything else is like important to the people within that group but if you want to analyze anything really it's all just class it's all just power who's got the power and who doesn't no. and like as in and for good or bad, like I'm not saying is in, I'm not making yeah. any judgments or anything else, but really that's all everything kind of is, like almost. And I feel like some of these extra arguments that can come in can almost cloud that fact from my perspective. The fact that like fundamentally it is just about like groups that for long term who have a certain power structure that set things up a certain way, I guess. Yeah, who's got the money? Who's invested in these power structures and, and so on? Nevertheless, the, the, all of those frameworks are, I mean, that's, that's true intersectionality is actually being able to read all of those frameworks, those um, fields of power class, race, gender, sexuality, disability, age and, and others, is to be able to read all of those fields of power um, through each other to be able to consider them all when you're doing historical analysis and not sort of leaving, not jettison any, any behind. We, and we're getting better at that. It's much more nuanced and much more complex history. But I do have a sort of feeling that although labour power was the sort of dominant paradigm, just as I was starting to, to, to get into the history 20-something years ago, it's probably time to revisit it and recognise how determining it is for all of these other fields of power. I mean, that's a, that's a, I, I see you're giving me insight into history analysis that I didn't even know existed, basically. the dip, And I love history, like, uh, but, yeah, not... I, I I don't know to this degree so it's interesting to me hearing all this stuff yeah well to give to give you an example of how things can you know become the focus to the detriment of not bringing in not doing intersectional history andreas mom's book which is absolutely amazing i mean he's rewriting the industrial revolution and 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 changing the way we can think about you know these huge shifts of people from you know mobilities of people but he he talks about the, the raw materials of of the spinners and the weavers and the mill masters, which are cotton and wool, and he doesn't mention slavery. He doesn't mention the southeastern pastoral um, the front, pastoral frontier of Australia. So that is where it's kind of like um, race blind. The book is kind of race blind because it fails to to do that extra bit of imagining to read um, what's happening around the plug plot riots in terms of slavery and, and dispossession. You know, this is where the raw materials for the textiles are coming from. So the spinning and the weaving is coming from India, the southern states of the United States and southeastern pastoral frontier of Australia. That's where we're talking about race and gender and to not sort of mention that in the whole book is a bit of an omission and it's why to keep intersectionality in the foremost of, of your analysis because it's how you don't leave these big things behind. Even though you're focused on this one area, you should at least be able to acknowledge these other elements that play into it, I guess. But I, I, I haven't read the book, so I can't say how much you, you can time you because really I'm guessing it's a classic slippery slope thing. It's like everything is connected to everything ultimately. So it's like where do you stop with that stuff as well? But obviously some mention's important. I, to go into something else before, we, uh, yeah, just because it is another big factor in all this, which uh, and it sounds like you've done a little bit Bit, uh, in relation to it, the fossil fuel element of it, the the growth in power of that side, and how you're seeing that impact today, is that something that you've dealt with in terms of your activism as well? Is that something you kind of dealt with as well? Yeah, the climate guardian angels were all about trying to theatricise this notion that humans were not listening to war to the warnings. They're in danger. We humans are in danger, and we need to have you know um, super angels to tell us how much danger we're in because we're not listening to the science. It has to come from somewhere. And then the whole association of angels with protecting children and the whole thing about future generations was part of what was being gestured towards in in the in the theatrics of, of the angels. And they were very effective. They were a bit white and they were a bit dominant because they were you know 
pretty women all dressed in white. Um, but we, <laughs> right. we, we, tack- we, did, we did tackle that by having cross-dressing angels and we had a family of angels that was, um, you know, binary and uh, we had um, a Native American angel in Paris. Um, so, you know, we, we, we tried to mess with that a bit, but it was, it was drawing, it, it is drawing on a, a, fairly, a fairly dominant trope. Yeah, that's interesting part of uh, activism and these kind of spectacles is you need to deal in the stereotypes that people will actually understand what you're playing with or you're playing off but in that way you could actually mm. be or there would be people within your group who would be like I don't like these stereotypes at all I don't like that what you're doing yeah. here so I guess that's the issue with being an activist if you're like I don't use the term too woke too like casually here or being insulting about it but it's the issue where like everyone could find something where they're like I don't know if I like this this makes me uncomfortable because of the implications or something so that would be a difficult mm. part of balancing with what you do I guess. Yeah bingo because when you're working with spectacle or theatre you people need to at a glance understand all of those built-in messages that goals protection of children messaging from from the from the beyond um all of those uh, warnings and that kind of stuff they need to be doing that before they're consciously and running it through their frontal lobes <laughs> but at the same time, to be able to to have that kind of immediate recognition, you are depending sometimes on dominant tropes. And so you kind of have to fuck with it a bit and jam it as best as you can within, within those parameters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's interesting, yeah, yeah. It's tricky. It's really, it's actually really tricky, yeah. Have you ever had any of these kind of spectacle attempts which have gone maybe awry or gone the wrong way? Awry, yes. Awry? We, well, we right. went to. <laughs> I'll let it down out for myself. <laughs> I don't even know if it's. Ori or Ori. I don't know because I also... I don't I know. Also, I always said Ori, <laughs> but I've definitely heard Ori with my ears way more. So I'm definitely going to... Well, isn't it interesting because when you read a lot, you do pronounce words wrong and I do it all the time because I read more than I actually interact. <laughs> it's a sad admission. But anyway, I sound like a real nerd now. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> um, you're on the right podcast. I can give you I can give you an example. So we were in Paris a few weeks after the Bataclan massacre and the, the terrible, I mean, hundreds of people were shot, over a hundred in, in three or four different sites. We went to the Place de Republique because there was um, a security overlay where you couldn't demonstrate and we went anyway. And then you were allowed to assemble in a single line. So we went down to d- down from Place de Republique and we passed the Bataclan where there were still the flowers laid out and the memorials and the votaries. So suddenly, out of nowhere, a troop of angels appears at a, at a trauma site. And angels also shepherd the dead, yeah? So I felt that we were really in the wrong place at the wrong time. But we didn't know that by assembling as directed in one line, we weren't allowed to gather in a, in a clump of people, because of the security overlay, but we didn't know that down that, you know, avenue was the Bataclan. And I think two of the cafes where people lost their lives. I just remember catching the eye of one man who was obviously a local and he was just deeply traumatised. He was still in shock and he was reeling, you could see it. And he just, he just looked at me, our eyes caught and hid, and I just shook mine back. And it just gives me goosebumps to recount it because it takes me right back to that moment where that wasn't where we should have been. And what, what that we did there was elicit emotions that I don't think were uh, helpful. It wasn't even related to what you guys were doing, right? That was a... The Bataclan massacre. Like that was a completely separate yeah. thing. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, like because you were climate focused and then this is going on, yeah. so it's just like the incorrect iconography for a different cause altogether. So, yeah, I can understand that. As we were going around other parts of Paris, you know, while we were down in the metro with our wings off, we sort of carried them on over our shoulders like um, like skis because they're big, you know, organza kind of on aluminium frames. While we were sort of, because we'd been there, then photographed in the Place de Republique, we'd been photographed on, and we we're on the front cover of Le Monde, just I think only the online version, but everybody knew we were Les Anges d'Australie, we were Australian angels and we were there to shame our government. We're there to, to, to draw attention to how Australia was dragging its feet worse than anyone pretty much at the Paris COP21 negotiations. So in other parts of Paris, we literally got clasped to people's breasts, who you know, chests who, who had welled eyes and said, you know, we need this uplift. Um, and so they felt, as a very traumatised people, quite um, 
uplifted by the angels. And sometimes we'd walk down the street and they knew who we were and they'd step back and just applaud. So in other parts of Paris, we did seem to to kind of impart the right message. But right at the Bataclan, after, what, two or three weeks after it happened, we really were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, no, I can, I can understand that, <laughs> definitely. It is very, it's, it's very difficult when you're working with spectacle. You're never... 100% sure of what emotions you're going to elicit. You, you, don't have, you don't have complete control, no matter how impeccably you're dressed. You just don't have complete control over how the meanings that you're creating. Oh, that's, uh, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, such, you've been telling me so much that I didn't know. So this has been very Great. interesting for me. Thank you very much, Liz, uh, for coming on. Um, I guess the last thing I always say every show is, uh, do you feel like you found any connections between you and the work that maybe you hadn't seen there before? Yeah, I think, I think that the more I sort of talk about Mom and his work, Fossil Capital, the more I see. I haven't spoken before about how we need to return to class and labour as an analytical frame for historians. I sort of haven't articulated that, but I think that is the thing that really shines from his book, that when we, when we return to that frame of class and labour, we start to see things very differently. I mean, he has rewritten the history of industrialisation and it's about the suppression of the labour movement much more than we understood. And that has implications for frontier history, colonial history, migration history, you name it. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah, it is. It's, and it's interesting hearing like how, because you're right, like as in that, that we're all taught a certain story. So it's like, if that's not accurate, then that cha- and you don't think about how that is people f- choosing what yeah. to focus on in a historical context. So yeah, that's yeah, super interesting. It is. It's cool. So thanks. Thanks for the help. It congealed it for me. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Well, thanks very much, Liz. You've been a really fun guest, honestly. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, George. Talk soon. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to SansPantsPlus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's SansPantsPlus.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.